Hello, everybody. Welcome to IntelliCast. Um, this is Brian Lamar. I'm joined, as always, by producer Brian Peterson. Hello, Brian. Hey, how are you? Doing great. I'm also staring at Lisa Wilding Brown. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Brian. <laughs> Good to see you. Let's see. This episode brought to you by EMI Research Solutions. You can reach us at IntelliCast at EMI-RS.com. You can follow us on Twitter at EMI underscore research or IntelliCast1. And we would love a text occasionally, 513-401-5463. What are all your job titles, Lisa? Let's start off there. You're an SMR council member. Yes. So you're an elected official. That's correct. You're an Insights Associ- Association laureate. Now that's yes. fun. Yes, yes. That's exciting. That, what are the, that was the initial class. Is that right? Yes, the inaugural class. And super, super excited to be appointed. Um, wire exec member. Wire Mentor, Multicultural Insights Collective Founding Member. Oh, my goodness. Yep. yep. And then, oh, by the way. <laughs> I, said, also, I have a day job, too. <laughs> your day job is as the Chief Research Officer at Innovate, one of our favorite partners. So th- thank you for joining. That's a lot. Yes, it does sound like a lot uh, when you list it out that way. Uh, but I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you guys so much for having me on your podcast. This is exciting. Yes, we're, we're so happy to have you. We're going to do a little news, then we're going to talk about how you handle all those different job titles. Sounds great. Is that cool? Brian, you want to do some news? Sure. Kicking it off, the ResTech conference was a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to leave this kind of open a little bit. I just want to get your thoughts and impressions of it. Lisa, you want to kick it off? Yeah, yeah. So I sat in on the ResTech conference, um, good buddies with Patrick Comer and the other folks over at, at Lucid. And um, yeah, I sat in on it and, and watched and listened. Uh, I think my, my initial kind of thoughts about it are, thank goodness. I, I love that there is now a name to describe what we all do. Um, I think as an industry, uh, we have an acronym for everything. First of all, we have more acronyms than we know what to do with. And, and, and certainly there's a lot of different labels flying around the place. But I do think historically we've struggled to have standardized nomenclature uh, with our demographics, with our questions. And I, I love that actually Patrick, when he started Lucid, he put together the, with his team, of course, put together the qualifications library on the Lucid platform. And what I was observing way back then was just how many different partners and buyers were all sort of subscribing to the same standardized questions. And I thought, oh, this is great. Because for so many years, you know, each and every company had their own way of asking questions and there really wasn't a lot of standardization. So when you were trying to map to other providers, uh, there was a lot of data mapping and, and sort of trying to, to fit the, the, the kind of square peg into the round hole and, and making concessions around how questions were asked. And, and you know, some of them didn't match a, a great deal, but some data is better than no data. And, and, and then it would impact requalification rates. So I do love this charge that, 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 you know, Patrick has taken to really help the industry move forward, not only with how we ask questions, but now giving us a way or a means by which we can uh, classify ourselves. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I think it's important to have those labels in place so that investors and other stakeholders in our ecosystem have a way of thinking about all of us. So I think it's, it's really great. And I'm excited to see how it takes shape. 
Um, man, good answer, first of all. Um, I'll add on a couple things. You mentioned at the end, kind of the investor portion. To me, that's the key, is Patrick is so connected to that side of our industry that I don't know. And so to me, that's the key. If, if we're gonna brand ourselves as an industry, the key is getting funding and getting awareness. And if people are investing in companies and investing in an industry, you know, maybe we need to res, hashtag ResTech. And so that's, I know he had SEMA on and an investors panel, and that was a whole big part of it. But also give kudos, I do this all the time to Patrick. If he says he's gonna do something, you better be prepared for he's going to do it and do it fast because, you know, he put up that, the, I don't know what you call it, that little landscape of all the companies and where they kind of fit. And the people argued about it online forever, you know, and say, Oh, you forgot me, um, <laughs> which was funny. But then three weeks later, he has a whole conference around it. And so he's, he's going to move quick and we need people like that in the industry. So kudos to him <clears throat> and his team. He obviously didn't do it alone. Um, but it's probably a big group of people that kind of pushed us forward. And I'm kind of excited to see where it goes. Yeah, I am too. I am too. And he is, he's a man of action for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Brian, what, you have probably have thoughts on this. What do you think? You're a branding guy. Yeah. So you and I have talked about this on previous episodes where you have CX and UX and different subsegments of research have that branding involved with that kind of catchy name that what we do resisting that I think that's by branding it res tech that kind of gives us that name that oh oh yeah I know what that is now because you talk to anybody and say oh CX or UX most likely you can get someone off the street and they know what you're talking about so hopefully we can get our portion of the industry to that level of knowledge in the common person okay good yeah, our we should have Patrick on. That's our running joke. We always say we should have so and so on, and we never do. <laughs> but we should have Patrick on seriously. We haven't had him on either. We need to have him on. Yeah, our next story um, is another story about the Confirmant and Focus Vision merger. They have finalized their new leadership team. Uh, Confirmant CEO Kyle Ferguson is named the CEO as is the CEO of the combined business. Focus Vision's former CEO, Chris Nagy, is the president and chief financial officer. And the new execs added to the existing executive team include Noel Hamill as the CMO, Giles Whitling as COO, and the managing director is Zanya Baleva. So I hope I probably butchered a lot of those oh, names. Kudos for even going for that. That was awesome. So yeah, so they've they've sent looks like they have announced their full team going forward with the combined organization. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Lisa, I, I'll start on this one. Um, I you know we're I should say we have a decipher contract as a lot of the industry does, but we also have a team that can, can that can program and confirm it. And so sometimes we'll use both platforms depending on the objectives. And I'm excited for the merger. This gives them a lot of power, I think. And I'm really excited to see where they kind of take this. They're moving pretty quickly, which is what I always like to see. Um, I know that their chief product officer, who was new to confirm it, came from Dapracy. So I'm really excited about the reporting side because that's, I, I do analyze a lot of data. Um, the reporting side is the one feature that I would like to see more improvements on for the, the Cypher end. And so I'm excited to see what happens as they kind of push forward. Kind of, I would call them the leading 
kind of programming platform in the industry. That might be incorrect, but it feels like to me they are. Lisa, how do you, I love that you're nodding your head, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. I mean, I, I love uh, Decipher. I think it's, yeah. it's a great tool. I have a lot of friends over at, at Focus Vision, and uh, I just think they're a really innovative, great team there. Um, I don't have as much familiarity with Confirmit in recent years. Um, back when I was at Harris Interactive many moons ago, we had a proprietary uh, survey scripting tool. Um, and it was, you know, in order to program a survey, you had to write in code um, yep. that it, it, it excluded a lot of, call it business people from ever programming their own survey. And you had to have a very unique skill set in order to be able to program a survey. And then um, our team back then um, opted to get a Confirmit license. And what I was very impressed by Confirmit, at least the feedback I got from our programming team, was that you could do a lot of customization with it. Um, you could pull off some very ambitious survey scripting needs, I guess you'll call it. And yeah. so, so I'm really interested to see kind of how these two companies come together to form one big mega company in the industry. I think they're going to shake some things up in a serious way. Um, and I'm excited to see what, what happens, but I think both of them collectively bring some really great things to the table and collectively together, they're going to do some great things as well. So it should be interesting to see how it shakes out. Completely agree. I was hoping Lisa and I would like vehemently disagree on something. We could like go back and forth, but I don't know if that's going to happen on these stories. <laughs> at least. Yeah, good we can get into a debate. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I'm going to take it from a different angle. Instead of the market research side, just the more business and combining. I've gone through, I've been at organizations that have gone through mergers and acquisitions probably three or four times. And just knowing that if you don't have a good leadership team that has a good mix from both, you get almost a us versus them type feel. And it's looking like they're not going to have this. It looks like it was split pretty evenly among the two groups. So the hopefully that they can avoid that because that can lead to some ill feelings and not great work environment if you're trying to work as a new combined team because it's, oh, well, this is how we did it. And oh well, that's the team that we bought. So that's the losing team. We're not going to do it their way. And so by having that more combined team, that should be, they should be able to avoid a lot of that. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that, Brian. And, um, you know, over my almost 20 years in the industry, I've been involved in a lot of mergers and acquisitions. I think at Harris, this is back when I was more entry level as a project manager in operations. So I was feeling the impact of decisions uh, from those leadership teams I think I was involved in a probably about seven or eight acquisitions that we had made, most of which were panels um, and operational teams. And it isn't always pretty. Uh, it, it can be very contentious, this sort of us versus them dynamic that you just described. Uh, and it can really impact the, the joint team's ability to get things done, to move quickly, to really think about how clients are being impacted because anytime there's an acquisition or merger, the first question is how are our clients going to react to this? Right. You know, is this going to cause attrition? Are clients going to leave because they, they sense things are unstable or unpredictable and, and what does the future look like? And I think it's all about having really good leadership in place that reflects both companies, like you mentioned, 
but also having really strong operational teams that can work together to shepherd the joint company through this new adventure that they're in. So I feel confident that they'll, they'll get it done. I think that I know several of the folks um, in operations over there and, and they're fantastic. So I have no doubts that they'll, they'll get it done, but you're, you're spot on. There's, there's been acquisitions and mergers in the past that, you know, were really big from a news perspective, right? Like everyone's like, Oh my God, did you hear so-and-so merge with so-and-so? But then, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months down the, the, the pipeline, it, it was like, what's going on over there, you know, and, and clients were feeling the pain of, of, of that joint collective. So I, I think that we'll see some good things come out of this, this merger. I agree as well. If you look at my LinkedIn profile, I have gone through quite a few mergers and acquisitions myself. Um, can be painful, can be pretty smooth. This seems like one of the smoother ones. So I agree with you guys. Uh, last one I have on here is more of a discussion topic. So there was an article in Research Live that talked about the balancing act of demographics with attitudes and behaviors, but specifically around pandemic behavior. This really piqued my interest because, Brian, this is a soapbox you like to get on a lot. And they were talking about how, if you're reading through it, they're talking about like the example they used was people using water bottles, plastic water bottles. Okay, yeah, it doesn't seem relatively changed, but then when you're starting to throw in different um, behaviors, you can see wild swings that go beyond just your normal 18 to 34 or over 55, things like that. So I just want to open it up here. What do you guys think about that? Should we be looking at behaviors, maybe pandemic behaviors as not a permanent change or because we know they've we've seen them go all over the board over the last year. But should we look at them in isolation? Should we ex- look at that? Like we need to be able to account for that a little bit better going forward. What do you think? I'll start off, Lisa, if you don't mind. Um, yeah. By the way, this is from Mark Enskip. He is the chief executive of Cantar's media division. I think it raises some good points. And I think for me, this is such an opportunity for marketers and people to put together segmentation profiles because I think that a lot of us are changing attitudes. A lot of us have changed our behaviors. And so it's such an opportunity to, you know, track them and then create new models about, and the reason we segment people really at its core is to try to market towards them. And so send different types of marketing messages towards different groups of people. And so I think most companies that do this go beyond demographics in the past, but now is such an opportunity to look at the changing I mean, our whole economy is kind of changing. Maybe I'm overblowing that, but I feel like it is. Um, our whole, everyone's attitudes have changed and everyone's behaviors are changing. I, that's, I should be a changing um, because what happens today may look different in a year from now. Lisa, mm-hmm. what do you think? Yeah, um, again, I guess we agree here. So it's not a terribly <laughs> controversial podcast. <laughs> Damn it. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not the same person I was 12 months ago. I am so yeah. different you know, and I'm in my 40s, I should be pretty well, like stabilized at this point. But the last 12 months have been incredibly impactful. There's been a lot of positive things that have come out of this, believe it or not. And then there's also been a lot of challenges and struggles that people have encountered. So I think what's been really interesting, you know, when when the pandemic first hit, right, those first couple weeks, and I think the last event I was at was the Quirks event in Brooklyn. 
And we all kind of thought, oh, this will be just like a few weeks and then life will get back to normal. But there was this sort of moment where we're like, God, what's going to happen? Like our world has completely changed. And, and what does this future look like? And yeah, I mean, work definitely started to decline. We saw some clients put their budgets on pause and stop spending. And I think everyone in the industry was sort of holding their breath to see what would happen. But then what I observed was just this strong appetite to measure and measure a lot because things were changing dramatically and not just behaviors, but how people were feeling, their actual attitudes. And then at the same time, there were some seismic cultural events and things happening in the news and an upcoming election and people's viewpoints on how the administration was handling the pandemic. And so there was just all of these things happening at once. And, and that's very overwhelming, I think, for, for consumers, for people to deal with. And so uh, what better way than to measure their their sentiment and understand how they're feeling today? And and like you said, it's 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 evolving. People's um, perceptions of the of their world, their environment, uh, brands and products and and services, all of it's changing. And so it it made me feel thankful that I'm in the industry I'm in, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and I think at the same time, there's been like this democratization of of data. Like I, I'm having conversations with family members about statistics and data. And, you know, just a few short years ago, they wouldn't have been able to describe what I do. And now they're like at the table talking about stats and like, you know, kind of ingesting data that's being fed to them through different news channels and, and uh, news media. And so that's been really interesting to see this sort of general appreciation for data uh, from the average person uh, that I hadn't really observed and just in my little world of interacting with family and friends. So that's been, that's been really, um, I think, pretty, pretty interesting. But, you know, one thing I have observed over the years is that, you know, as researchers, we love to classify, right? We love to put people into a bucket. Um, that's, that's what we do, right? Um, but it's much more complex than that. And I think just solely focusing on demographics and not looking at attitudes and behaviors is a huge miss. Um, So I have this conversation a lot. In fact, my friend Hillary DeCamp over at LRW, shout out to Hillary. She's fantastic. She's their chief research officer. And her and I did a series of COVID impact studies when um, COVID first hit. And she is a segmentation expert like there's no one better in this space when it comes to segmentation. And she and I worked together to do this research and she actually came up with these, um, I I think she called it COVID um, coping cohorts, right? And and how people perceive the world around them is very, very different. um, And it, it it can vacillate greatly from person to person. And so making sense of that through segmentation, I think is really, really helpful for brands and something that they should be thinking about. So um, shout out to Hillary and for her great work and, and, you know, never kind of thinking in terms of sample procurement, you know, looking at just demographics in my mind is a huge miss. So we actually do a lot of quality testing as you guys might be aware of when we're evaluating new providers that are going to send traffic into our panels. We have a test, a litmus test that we, we, we do. And, you know, we have consistency checks and red herrings. And of course, we look at demographics, but we have a series of attitudinal and behavioral questions 
that we include. And that really helps us establish a benchmark to understand how far does a particular source swing from the ex expectation. And that can really help with sample blending and creating replicable sample frames. I'm getting real nerdy right now. So just pull me back a little bit, guys. Um, well, but I'm it's- a, Let's get nerdier. Oh, okay, let's do this. Uh, but yeah, that's super critical. Um, and, and I think my last point I'll say is, you know, demographics are, are very interesting to me. Um, I think we've seen more and more in the last year that people's sense of identity is changing. Identity in itself is something that is evolving. And so I would just say out to everyone listening, it's super important for us as an industry to reevaluate the way that we ask demographics yep. uh, and really focus on inclusivity. I think that that's really, really important. And, and to look at other resources outside of just census, uh, because census, in my opinion, doesn't get it right. There's, there are groups that are excluded in the way that the demographic questions are captured in our census. And that's super problematic, but there are some great resources online um, through um, other government agencies and uh, in academia as well. Uh, and I'm hopeful that as an industry that we can come together and figure out, well, how should we be asking demographics and, you know, give some advice and some best practices to both buyers and sellers of, of insights and research, because I think that that's something that to me is a real strong need. And I'm hopeful that my role in SMR can, I can contribute in that area because I have some, some strong opinions on how it should be, how it should be done. I'm glad you brought that up, Lisa, because um, we're designing our next wave of research where we we basically segment panels mm -hmm. based on attitudes and behaviors. And I'm doing a section on demographics because that's something I'm passionate about as well. I don't think it's very inclusive. And, you know, the census is only asked every 10 years or so. And our, our nation changes much faster than a bureaucratic wing in D.C., likes to think it does probably, right? Mm -hmm. um, not, not, I mean, it's not really their fault in many ways that you would do a survey every 10 years, but for marketers and researchers, it's super important that we're inclusive as we're getting feedback from people to make to ensure representativity. And I don't think we've ever asked these questions the correct way. And so I do think there, there is now this momentum to both kind of standardize it and be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so um, we'll hold you accountable, Lisa, as an SMR council member to help push mm -hmm. this forward. And this is not being critical of anybody. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge challenge to align on these variables. It's not easy to do. We just If you talk about ethnicity, we could probably argue about ethnicity for an hour, right? Mm -hmm. We could bring on a whole panel of people and come up with 10 different ways to ask just the ethnicity question, none of which are wrong. But it's really hard to align on. It's a really tough task, but um, yeah, it's a good topic. We could talk all day on this yeah. demographic. Yeah, and I know there's some initiatives that are going they are yep. going on right now, right? So uh, Mel Courtright, who's a good good pal of mine, CEO of Insight Association, she's um, formed an advisory board. I'm part of uh, uh, the collective, the Multicultural Insights Collective, which shout out to them. They are an incredible group of researchers we all got together last year and we just said, let's stop tweeting about it. Let's stop you know, just kind of talking about it. Let's yeah. take action. And that's why I love being part of, of the collective because I feel like we're really 
making some moves and, and uh, we would love to collaborate with, with other associations um, like SOMR, the Insights Association. I know um, Patrick and Voices of Color are doing some stuff with Lucid uh, around demographic batteries of, of questions. And I think the key to remember is it's not just like set it and forget it. Yeah. Again, identity is evolving. It's changing how we label ourselves and how we think about ourselves is not something that's going to be static. We need to constantly revisit it. And yeah. that can create pain in the supply chain, right? Because yes. there's so much programmatic connectivity nowadays that requires, you know, system A to talk to system B and there's development required. Uh, and so it is, it's going to put strain on the supply chain and our ecosystem, but it's a commitment that we all need to make uh, that we're going to continue to look at. Uh, it's not, again, set it and forget it, because that, in my mind, would be such a fail. We're, we're kind of already segueing into the next part of the, the conversation, Brian, aren't we? Before we do, I have two questions for you guys. Yeah. Um, the first, with the changing and how people feel about their identity and what makes each person individual, do you think that at some point in the near future, demographics are going to be less important in terms of segmenting? Hmm, that's a good question. I think demographics are important because they allow us as researchers to create some categorization. But the key to remember is that within these demographic groups, there's varying attitudes and behaviors, right? I mean, I've had this conversation with my friend, uh, Machela Mora, who happens to be on the collective with me. And she's a, an immigrant originally from Cuba. And we were talking about Hispanics in general, right? And, and we know that Hispanics as a consumer target has been a huge target for many, many years. A lot of companies have put together different acculturation indexes to measure the level of acculturation. And there's several questions behind that, behavioral and attitudinal questions that can drive that. But you know, if you even look in the last election, right? We saw very divergent results um, among the Hispanic population uh, some for Trump, some for Biden. Uh, and it's just important to acknowledge that, you know, demographics and, and culture and cultural designation and ethnicity, it's not a monolith, right? There are other things that contribute outside of a person's uh, ethnicity or race or gender. Uh, there are attitudes and behaviors that contribute to them as a consumer. And you just, you, you can't leave that off the table. You have to consider that. And that's why I think segmentation is something that's super, super important. Uh, but I don't think demographics are going away. I think they just need to evolve and change and reflect uh, our society in a more accurate way. I'll add to that. Very well said. I hope that, especially with, um, I think all demographics. I hope that the color of one's skin is not the primary way that we segment populations moving forward and market towards them. Um, we're a melting pot as a country and hopefully globally and the color of one's skin does not determine what ads I respond to, what marketing activities that drive me to do certain things. And especially in America, we've, we should be the driving force of this because we're so diverse. And I'm hopeful that we segment people based upon attitudes and behaviors, primarily 
And then, yes, there's probably some demographics in there as well, but it shouldn't be the first thing that we look at. That might be altruistic and hopeful, um, but that's, that's how I feel. No, that's good. Did they answer your question? I, yeah, it's, it did. Uh, the second part to that is, as we've seen with the pandemic, we've, we've all noticed the rise in work from home. I mean, two of the three of us on this video right now are working from home. Brian's not, but he lives five minutes from the office. So we'll call it work from home. Do you, I almost imagine that people are going to be looking at, I can do my work anywhere now. I want to figure out where I'm going to live. Yes, when the cent, this year's census is done, or this round of census is done, it's almost going to be irrelevant come 18 mm -hmm. months from now because you're going to see a mass mm -hmm. movement of people. Like, all right, I can do my job. Like, I've been doing it from my home office. We're, what, over a year now? You know what? I could do it anywhere. You know what? Maybe I want to go live by a beach, and I'm moving out to North Carolina. Or, you know what? We want to go mi more Midwest, more than Ohio, I guess. Like maybe we're moving more central it, or, Hey, we want to look at the mountains. We're moving to Denver. You, you might see more migrations of people. So does that make the census less important kind of going forward than because of what might be a movement of people over the next few years because of this push to virtual work? Well, I mean, I think, sorry, I'm getting deep. Yeah. I mean, I think right now things are, are, are changing more so than they have historically for sure. I mean, I, first of all, have been working from home on and off almost my entire career. Um, really since my oldest was born 15 and a half years ago. Um, and, and the companies I've worked for have not been based here in Rochester, New York, where I am. So innovate space in Calabasas, California. So I've, you know, I've been, and when I was at USAMP slash instantly, they were also, they were in Encino at that time. And I was here in, in Rochester and then down in Dallas for a few years. So I'm a bit of a gypsy. I, I like to, to, to move around. It drives my husband crazy. I make him move like every four to five years. And I always seem to come back to Rochester. I don't know why. Maybe I just, I love the punishment of the snow, but um, you know, I think, I think everyone has different work styles, work experiences. I think for me, even though I've been home working from home for so long, this year was very different because my two kids were here with me and my husband was working from home more. Um, he owns his own business, but he, he wasn't traveling for the first few months of the pandemic. And then he was on the road a ton because he works in pharma. So that's been a big year for, for that industry. And so then I was like, okay, I'm kind of like the single mom working from home with two kids, full-time zoomers. And it just was like a very weird, strange year. So I don't know that necessarily the census is less important. I think the census is just one tool that we can, we can use. There's a lot of great tools out there, whether from the world of academia uh, like the general social survey is a fantastic tool that we use a lot here at Innovate. It's been running since the 70s out of Newark. And, and there's just tons of incredible attitudinal behavioral data that can be pulled from that and used for benchmarking. Um, Pew Research is another awesome uh, tool or business that, you know, uh, organization that we use data from. Um, so I think there's just lots of different resources that can be leveraged to make sense of this this paradigm shift that we have all 
encountered over the last 12 months? Um, I'll try to add to that. That was really well said, but the census just occurred during such a weird time. It occurred during a pandemic. And so that's just odd, right? People are going to answer their door during a pandemic and to a stranger. Um, That's hard to do in a non-pandemic year. It was in the middle of an election. Not only that, a very divisive election. And so that brought in certain demographic groups, right? I mean, that was part of the challenge. Um, So will the census, and then you have on top of this, the whole point of the question, Brian, is that people are moving around, people are changing their attitudes, behaviors. As a society, we're kind of evolving uh, to something different. And so is the census truly representative? To me, the census is used for two things. It's probably used for a lot of other things, but primarily it's used to determine house seats for government, right? How many state representatives each state use? But secondly, we use it in research and marketers use it to try to become representative. And so I love that Lisa mentioned some other resources because those that win will be taking data if that census targets or if that's data that Lisa mentioned a bunch of um, to leverage whatever the population is for their advantage. And that may be a census target, which is what we call our standard go-to in research, balance on census, but maybe something else. As, as the smarter marketers learn to kind of evolve that data a little bit and maybe massage it and use some art to it, um, that's challenging. That'll be, that's, this is a good question. It'll be really challenging for people to figure out. It will. I mean, I think too, and this is something I pointed out in a recent panel I was sitting on for sample cons lunch and learn series. I don't know if you guys had a chance to check that out, but I've often thought about this, this point I'm going to make. Um, and it's, it's something that I think was really a driving force for why we started the multicultural insights collective, because if you're sampling for census rep, you're sampling for a white majority. Mm-hmm. And if your sample design and your survey design is not built in such a way, you're automatically from the get-go going to be really underrepresenting various diverse groups. And, you know, on on average, I I see a lot of surveys that come in from a wide variety of clients. And most of the time, the end size is anywhere between, you know, 300 on the low end, 1,000 on the high end. That's sort of the kind of sweet spot. But if you're not oversampling, uh, if you're not nesting your the different groups and looking at sort of the uh, interlocking nature of those groups, you can really miss the mark when it comes to giving a voice to underrepresented or more marginalized groups. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity for learning there. Um, just in the, my travels and having conversations with different people across the ecosystem. I just think there's a a real opportunity for information sharing there and best practices. Again, hopeful that associations can take a a forward kind of foot on this and make some, some, um, you know, provide some advice to the industry on that. Uh, But I love, you know, as difficult as nested quotas are, I think they're important. We talked about adding attitudinal and behavioral measures as well not relying solely on census, but looking at other resources. Uh, I think, Brian, your point about, you know, looking at these different resources and making decisions, I mean, that's the beauty of of research, right? That's 
that's our impact. That's where we can have value and produce value for, for our clients. Uh, but I, I think it's really important to not sort of operate in the silo and to take this opportunity to realize, yes, identity is evolving. Culture is, is dynamic and we need to do a better job as an industry representing those groups and, and not, don't forget about the generational component too, right? Like when we were doing research um, in the collective, we saw really significant differences within groups across generation. You know, how baby boomers feel is not the same on how Gen Z feels within Hispanic, within mm-hmm. Caucasian, within Blacks, within Asian American. Like, you know, that generational lens is super, super critical. You just got to make sure that your survey and your your sample design reflects all those different groups um, so that you can have really rich data on the back end and be able to pull some really interesting insights that had you had this more general white majority strategy, you would have missed. And that's a missed opportunity to to really reflect the interests and perspectives of of all consumers. Right. I love having smart people on the podcast. Just letting them go. Just let them talk. <laughs> so well said, Lee. So let's end that. Let's end this topic with that one. Does that sound good? Yeah. I think we'll have to turn this into a two-part interview. Because <laughs> we've gone 35 minutes, I think. Should we move on to the interview, more the more personal interview part yeah. of the? Yeah. Lisa, are you ready for some tough questions? I am. Bring it. These aren't that tough, but. Um, you're involved. I mean, I read off your resume earlier. You're involved in so much stuff and this is just your professional stuff. I mean, you have a family, you're passionate about things outside of your professional life. You've written about before. Um, I try to be as well. I don't think my resume is quite as impressive as yours. By the way, you've had an amazing year, um, elected to SMR and as a laureate events association alone are just incredible achievements. So congratulations. Thank you. I think my primary question, initial question is how do you do it all? Because like you said, you have a day job. You're the chief research officer. You're a C-level at a large sample company. And that is a lot of work alone, yet you still have time or find time to do these other things. So curious how you do it. Hmm. It's hard. It's hard. I work a lot. Um, and that's not anything to brag about. Honestly, I think I'm always yeah. trying to strive for work-life balance. I think work-life balance is super, super important. You know, when, when I'm in my deathbed, hopefully years and years from now, uh, I want to reflect back and, and not think, oh my God, I spent my whole life just working. Cause that's, that's not an achievement in my mind. I, I, uh, at the end of the day, my family is what's most important. I have two sons. I have a 15 year old and a nine year old, two boys, Keen and Gavin. And of course my husband, and we just recently celebrated 20 years together. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so it, it's hard. It's hard to balance it all. It's not easy. Um, it takes, I think a lot of discipline. I'm pretty, pretty disciplined about my calendar. So if I get a meeting invite on my calendar, and because I do get pulled into a lot of calls, a lot of meetings, I challenge my colleagues, like, do you really need me on that call? Like, I'm really trying to empower those around me. I feel, I feel like if I'm the only one that can make the decision, then I'm not doing a very good job. It's really about figuring out, you know, who are the right people to bring onto your team so that you can step back and be involved in some of these other very important organizations that are going to help move the industry forward 
you know, and leverage your expertise uh, as, as a thought leader. I think that's, that's really important. So I have tremendous, amazing colleagues and we have been very, very strategic about who we bring onto the team, who we hire, how we recruit. Uh, and, and, and those folks really allow me to, to get involved in, in some of these other activities that you, that you mentioned, Brian. So I'm really, I'm really thankful for them. I think that's super important. And my job as a leader is to empower those around me, give them license to not, um, you know, need to ask like every time, like, is this okay if I do this, Lisa? I mean, that's like a micromanager. That is like the kiss of death. Like I have to empower people to make decisions, to be autonomous, because when you're surrounded just by really incredible, smart people that can, can be autonomous, then the whole company just moves forward in such a really great, efficient clip. Uh, and, and you've just got to, you got to know when to back down and to step away and trust, right? You got to trust those around you. But I think being really disciplined about my calendar, blocking time, uh, out of my calendar to address certain activities and things that I have to do is something I do a lot of. I'm a, a, a list maker. I love a list. Sometimes I'll even write things I've already accomplished on the list just so I can cross it off. I know there's people listening that do mm -hmm. this, so I'm okay to admit it. Mm -hmm. um, but I like to just tick it off. Tick, tick, tick. I like to, to get it, get it done. Um, you know, and I've been at companies in the past where every decision was done by committee and it would be like, Oh, we gotta have a meeting about when to have the meeting and uh, we'll make a decision maybe, you know, in 12 months time. No, like that, that's a very frustrating experience to, to work at a business like that. So uh, when I, when I heard the guys were starting innovate, I, I had experience working with them. I loved working with them. And so I knew I wanted to be part of that because they've always been leaders that allowed those around them to be autonomous, to be independent. Uh, and, and they're certainly not micromanagers, which I really appreciate. So I think it's just about trying to have that balance as best as possible, being disciplined, and, you know, I don't have to be the smartest person in the room, but I've got to be hardworking. Like that's very important for me is having that work ethic. And I saw it in my parents. They're, they're absolute, both of them are absolutely very hard workers. And I had that model growing up from a very young age. So hopefully my kids get it too. We'll <laughs> um, you mentioned something that I could be better at and that's discipline with your calendar. I've tried a million different things and I, don't, I think that's probably one of the areas I struggle in is discipline with my calendar in that if people bring me into a meeting, I feel I don't push back hard enough. I feel like if I'm providing value to the thing that's most important in my professional life, it's, it's EMI. Mm -hmm. The other things should be secondary for the most part. Um, and so it's hard for me to um, turn down meetings. And sometimes it's even hard to empower people and teach them, okay, you don't need me here. You can make this decision on your own. That's a big challenge, I think, is the discipline with your calendar and empowering people. Um, now, certainly some people, at least at EMI, are much better at it than others. And so um, that's really good advice. I just think it's so challenging. Like I block off Mondays, Mondays from no meeting days. By the way, we're recording this podcast on a Monday. Um, mm -hmm. And I have a two hour meeting this afternoon. So, you know, those things fall apart really quickly when you try to block stuff off. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you can expand on discipline with your calendar or, or empowerment, even like do you train people to kind of what's in Lisa's head. Do you, is that what you do? 
Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been a person that tries to create learning opportunities. Like when I first, mm-hmm. and it's all been based on bad behaviors that I've seen in the past, right? Like yeah. I've had a lot of great managers, but I've had some really bad managers too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you learn, you observe good behavior and bad behavior. And then you sort of take stock and you say, okay, don't do that. When I become a leader someday, don't do that because that doesn't feel good when you're on the other end of that. Um, so I think that informs the way I, I interact with, with my colleagues. Um, I think it's important to, to block some time out of your calendar and to really be very disciplined about it. And, you know, you're not going to get that 20 item list completed in a day, Brian, you're just not, but you got to ask yourself at the start of the day, what is the most important thing that I've got to get out the door today and, and try to get that off your plate so that you can feel that win. Because that win is going to help carry your momentum throughout the day. And then I think the other thing I would say there is the word no is as important, if not more important than yes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? You have to give yourself license to say no. Otherwise, you're just going to run ragged. And I've learned this through experience for sure. I wasn't always this person. I've evolved over the years, just like we were talking about you know, how people evolve and change and how identity is changing. The identity of Lisa has changed through the years and I'm a people pleaser by nature. And so I hate saying no, it doesn't come Mm -hmm. natural to me, but I I've learned that it's okay. And I have now the agency to say no, you know, but when you're young and you're new in the, in the field, you don't feel that you have permission to say, to say no. So you as a leader have an opportunity to give those younger people the agency to say no and to take risks and to make decisions because if you create this environment where people are frozen with fear or making a mistake or taking risks, then you're, you're going to create your like a little micromanager in yourself and you didn't even know it was happening. Right. But it's important to share knowledge. I've seen this in, in managers I had in the past, they seem very guarded with their knowledge and they didn't want to relinquish control or relinquish information. And, you know, maybe it's an insecurity around their, their place in the company. But to me, that type of leadership is, is not good. It doesn't benefit you because you're not doing your job, not you specifically, Brian, I think you're a great leader, but I'm saying I've, I've observed leaders in the past that, that, that are very guarded and they do it probably because of insecurity of losing their role or kind of, um, you know, writing themselves out of their own organization. But I, I just think that that's a really kind of old school way of thinking. I think people are best when they are armed with independence and autonomy. And you, you as a leader, create the environment where that's a safe place for them to operate. And they're going to stumble. They're going to falter. They're going to make mistakes. And going through those mistakes and helping them navigate those mistakes is also a great, great learning opportunity. I mean, you and I, I'm sure we have some like just horrible battle stories of mistakes we've made in our own careers, right? Absolutely. And, and, and you learn by doing, I'm a big believer in that you learn by doing. And so those mistakes are just as important as the wins, maybe even more so. Absolutely. Completely agree. Um, such good advice. And one thing I love about you, and I learned this, one of our first conversations, you said, let's partner together. And I thought, ah, oh, that's just something people say. And then I realized you're, you will, 
I think you will partner with about anybody. You love the partnership aspect of your role. You love partnering with other companies, some of which would say you're your competitors, right? You really want to lift up the industry. That's something that I like to take pride in myself. I know Hillary, you mentioned Hillary DeCamp. You, I know you and Mark Minnick have done a lot of stuff. Andrew Cannon, and that's just the top of the list. You'll partner with anybody. And I just love that aspect about you. I just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you. No, I, I love, I love making new friends. You know, <laughs> when I first, um, when I was in college, I wanted to be a broadcast journalist. That's what I wanted. Yeah. I wanted to be like the next Connie Chung reporting the news. Um, but it didn't happen. I, I finished going into research accidentally, like most of us, but I've realized there's so many parallels between what we do and, and what have, you know, career in journalism would have afforded me. And at the root of it, it's just curiosity. I like to yeah. answer and ask questions. Um, I like to, to, to solve mysteries. Uh, yeah. And I'm really, really curious about what makes people tick. And so I love meeting new people and finding new ways to collaborate. And I think ultimately, I see myself as like a lifetime student, like I am, there's mm -hmm. so much I don't know, there is so much I don't know. But if I, if I don't know the answer, I'm going to find someone who does. And I'm going to create those I'm like a matchmaker almost, right? Like I'm going to match mm -hmm. you with someone that can answer that question better than I can because I've done my homework and I figured out what are the gaps in my own knowledge and understanding and expertise? Like where are the white spaces for me to learn more? How do I get that done through different partnerships and collaborations? Um, but also I think it adds a lot of value, right? Like I can add value by creating these, these collaborations, not only for myself as a lifetime student, but for the industry, because again, I don't know all of it, and but I'm, yeah. I'm seeking out partners and, and collaborations with people that are going to help true up my my gaps of knowledge and then also do something that's impactful for, for the industry. And, and you're right. I've partnered with a lot of people that you might say I, I'm directly competing against. But I just think that this is a big, bright world and we have a lot of opportunity to make each other better. And that's only going to benefit our clients and the ecosystem in general. So why not go for it? Yeah, the, the person you compete against today could be your boss tomorrow or report to you the next day, um, could buy your company. I mean, this is such an incestuous um, world that we kind of work in, that we've chosen in, and um, you, you can't burn bridges, that's for sure. So it's, it's always better to partner and to build for, cert, for sure. Um, I'd love to maybe move on. You all have started talking about what's new at Innovate. And one thing that I've read about is Vision Suite. Can you tell us more about what's going on at Innovate? What's Vision Suite? Yeah, I'm, I'm super thrilled about uh, rolling out this amazing new suite of tools. Uh, it really reflects the culmination of just years and years of work and iteration uh, with, with the team, uh, both our product and our research teams here at, at Innovate. Uh, vision is, in my mind, really the, the answer to the industry when it comes to conducting quick pulse surveys to generate faster answers, right? Faster answers is Innovate's tagline. And I remember the day that I got together with the guys and we sat around the table and we were all kind of brainstorming and we wanted to find out, and, and Brian Peterson, you'll, you'll appreciate this as the brand guys, like we need a tagline that really reflects what we stand for. And, and so in order to figure out what that was, because we think we stand for a lot of things, but what's most important? What do we want people to really think about when they think about Innovate? And, and we start with pain. We start with 
what is the pain that clients are faced with day in and day out? Because if you can figure out what the pain points are and you have a solution to solve for that pain, then you got yourself a great business. And the number one pain point that we kept putting up on that whiteboard was speed, right? This is a very competitive, dynamic, fast-moving world that we live in. And our clients need speed. They need to get insights quickly so that they can take those insights and indoctrinate change uh, and future-proof their businesses. And that's really the whole impetus of what the vision suite is. It's, it's a tool that is going to allow researchers across the ecosystem, on the brand side, on the agency side, to conduct research end to end, right? So one of the things that I observe in our industry is that, you know, there's DIY sample tools, there's some quality tools, there's survey scripting tools, but they all exist, you know, at different companies. And so another pain that contributes to this lack of speed is that you have to create interconnectivity between these, these different platforms. And so we decided several years ago that we were going to build an end-to-end solution that would allow clients to write their own surveys, field against our proprietary panel, and also benefit from all the different quality and fraud mitigation tools that we've developed over the years, just from our own best practices and research on research. So there's no need to kind of go and create linkages to all of these different platforms when you have one that does it does it all. Now, I will say this, if you're looking to conduct, you know, a conjoint max diff, something that is very intensive from a design standpoint, this tool is not the right tool for you. You certainly could still use it to garner uh, and procure sample from our panel or to leverage our quality tools. So you can use us and however fits your model best. But, you know, some of the other tools out there like a confirm it or decipher would be a much better match if it is a more complex survey design. That's so well said. Um, I'm looking at your website, a comprehensive collection of next generation products designed to execute agile survey creation, sample procurement, field, field management, fraud mitigation, and rep reporting. That's awesome. And that's really driving the industry forward. That pain point, obviously everybody that works in our industry feels it. And so, the fact that you're driving towards a solution and combining all of those different parts of the research process will help innovate other companies as well as we try to also compete with that. So uh, that sounds awesome. How long is it, how long has it been since you released it? We released it in early March, so it's still okay. early days, but it's it's been in beta for several yeah. months. So we have some clients, active clients, that are using the tool. And and what I love about the team too that I work with is we're very tech focused. I learned that very early on when I first started working with Matt Dusig back in 09. Yeah. Like we sat down and we started, you know, whiteboarding out different ideas. And he at the time told me he was going to do a DIY sampling platform. And I was like, what? Like this is pre-lucid, right? Yeah. And I came from a full service research company. I came from Harris Interactive. And so he sat, sat me down and he's like, what do you think of this idea? If I let clients sample their own projects. And I was like, are you crazy? Right. You're a nut job, man. It's that entrepreneurial spirit of yeah. those people. And, yeah. and I was like, I think that's a really bad idea, bro. Right. Like you got to reconsider. But, you know, I I had to be deprogrammed. I wasn't yeah. an entrepreneur that I am today back yeah. then. 
you know, he's really been such a huge mentor of mine and he's the first it's him and Greg and George, they've been the first at so many things. Yeah. They were the first to develop a mobile panel app. Um, They have the patent on routing as a sampling technology. I mean, they've just done so many things and been the first to do it. And I often joke, like you guys peak too soon. It's interesting. (laughs) Like we haven't peaked too soon this time around. There's a lot of uh, companies out there that have, you know, res tech like this, but I think this is sort of the, again, the culmination of all of our best thinking and creativity. And I think from the feedback we've gotten with clients that it's very intuitive, right? Is one of the things about Matt is that as a lead technologist for the company, it's really about building beautiful design because he's a photographer. I don't know if you knew that, Brian, but he's a photographer and originally started as a graphic designer. So he has a great mind for art. And so he, he creates beautiful tech products that are very intuitive. And so I think think it's going to be really great for our clients to, to interact with it more and more. And they're going to find it's just so easy and intuitive. Well, we'll link to it in our show notes. And I want to be mindful of your time. Can I ask you one more question? Or do you need to go? Absolutely. Last question. That's an easy one. Um, What's the future of sampling look like? (laughs) (laughs) It's a real simple question. Real high level. Where do you think we are in five or 10 years? Like, yeah. It's not going to look like today, right? That's going to look a little different. I think you're going to see continuation of the programmatic solutions that yeah. are play, right? Um, that's not to say that panels are going away. I love panels. I think panels give you a lot of flexibility. They allow you to pull off a lot of non-traditional work like iHuts and, you know, qualitative recruitments, app downloads, things like that, that are more difficult to pull off from an intercept um, methodology. But I think you're going to see continued focus on programmatic and just getting more automated and smarter in the supply chain, uh, because that that is really where the efficiencies are created. Now, there's some impact with that strategy. So, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about in the past CPI, right, cost per interview. And that's been the traditional way that buyers have procured sample is through, here's my incidents, here's my length of interview, uh, the audience that I'm looking to target, and then the sample provider sends back, okay, here's your CPI, this is the cost that you're going to have to pay per qualified interview. And that's really been the economic model all these years. But because our our ecosystem is going more programmatic, there is less opportunity for people to manually intervene on poor performing projects because everything is driven by algorithms and EPC, earnings per click. So what that means is if you've been running a very, you know, low incidence, low converting projects, high, high length of interview time, uh, long, long length of interview time, you know, your survey is a dud and it's not going to look attractive to the supply ecosystem. And you're either going to have to pay more or you're going to have to reevaluate your survey, you know, research practice and, and figure out ways to, to make that survey shorter and more palatable for, for survey participants. So I think the economic model has really evolved and the sampling provider no longer is sort of carrying the bag on these yeah. dead projects. Um, I think they're in a position of power and it's important for people to stop doing bad things to survey participants, right? Really yeah. be mindful that it's 2021. You are competing with all the other fun things to do online. And I can tell you taking surveys is not that 
So you've got, I think, as, as a practitioner of research, you need to figure out how to optimize, make a mobile first strategy and focus on survey participant experience and looking the best you can from an EPC standpoint, because otherwise you're going to really run into some supply challenges. And I think a lot of clients saw that this last year, yeah, especially with the election, because there was such an influx of cool polling surveys out and about, right? In Q4, uh, high pain, short, fun, passionate topic. And, and I think a lot of traditional buyers out there struggled with getting adequate supply in Q4 because yeah, uh, yeah. their surveys just didn't pass, pass the test. So um, I, again, I think it's going to be a continuation of, of more programmatic linkages between systems. Uh, but I think this, you know, the, the, the future is very bright. I think there's, there's an incredible democratization of, of research that's happening. So I think there's more and more surveys out there in the ecosystem, but that means the competition is, is, is pretty strong and you've got to make your survey, not only an incredible, you know, measurement instrument, that's going to yield the results you're looking for and the insights you're, you're looking to discover, but you, you need to think about participant experience. It's, it's so critical. Well, I wish we had another hour or three (laughs) to talk about respondent experience, which is a passion of mine. We didn't really touch on data quality. We didn't talk about what you're planning on doing as part of the SMR council as having a sample representative. That's amazing. And we barely touched on future of insights and sampling. So, but I think we'll have to end the interview now and have you back on later. Yeah, um, that sounds great. Let's do another another session. Yeah. A lot it's such a joy to talk to you. I could do this all day long. I feel like I'm smarter and you're just awesome to talk to and you're doing so much for our industry and I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you guys so much for having me. And I, I, I can say it right back to you, Brian and Brian, uh, Brian squared, you guys, uh, this, this podcast is awesome. And I think it's a, it's a great channel for folks to tap into, to understand what's new and exciting in the industry. And so I really appreciate your thought leadership. And again, we're going to find more ways to collaborate together this year. We have to make it happen. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll get to see you in person sometime in the next year or so, hopefully. Yes, absolutely. I'm, yeah. I'm planning to make it to SampleCon in July if it, if it okay. does happen in person. So I'll see awesome. you in All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, special thanks to Lisa Waddenbrow. How can they reach you? If people want to reach out to you, they have lots of questions. How can they reach you, Lisa? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Lisa at InnovateMR.com is my direct email address. So that's the best place to, to find me. Okay. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.